Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The Simpson Collection at the National Gallery of Art is one of the few remaining private collections assembled with the participation of artist Auguste Rodin, 1840-1917. Most of Rodin's sculpture is sand-cast, the main method used in Paris since the mid-19th century, and he usually worked with the foundry established by Alexis Rudier. Jean Limay, a painter by trade, became the appointed patinator of Rodin's bronzes and photographer of his work. In a joint presentation recorded on February 23, 2015, senior conservator Daphne Barber and conservation scientist Lisha Glinsman focus on seven bronze sculptures cast during Rodin's lifetime and gifted by Mrs. John W. Simpson, including the notable works A Burger of Calais, The Kiss, The Thinker, and The Walking Man. Barber and Glinsman discuss their ongoing research focusing on Rodin's intrinsic aesthetic realized by his trusted practitioners and preserved in these lifetime casts. Leisha and I began this research many years ago. Here we are. You probably still have your copy of the Journal of Medals from 1997, where we were prominently featured on the cover. Um, we began this research for the Systematic Catalog, which was published in 1996, I believe. And this happened so long ago that I am actually pregnant with my son, who is now in college, and I'm holding the X-ray film to cover my stomach because I didn't want to <laughs> pose for the picture. But we, fortunately, I mean, a number of things came up in between this research um, and today. But two years ago, we had the opportunity to return to it, and you have the benefit of almost 20 years of. Progress not only in the literature but the availability of the Rodin Museum archives, which were not available to us at the time, and then the change in the technology and the research that we could do. Uh, Auguste Rodin is perhaps the most prolific sculptor of his time. He's also among the last artists to have operated a studio in the grand tradition of old masters, young artists and craftsmen who assisted with modeling clay, carving model, or casting plaster models flocked to his studio. By 1900, Rodin employed over 50 assistants, many of whom lived with him on site at the Villa de Briand, which is shown where is Rodin shown here among some of his plaster models. The, the villa is in Meudon, which is about 30 minutes from Paris today, but it was an easy commute even for Rodin by train or boat, and he kept studios in Paris as well. Under his watchful eye. Craftsmen at work in Rodin's studio were subjected to his whim, corrected, critiqued, or enlightened by his genius. But what happened when a sculpture was cast into bronze, by necessity outside the confines of his studio? How engaged was Rodin in the casting or patinating process? Today, we're going to discuss seven lifetime bronzes by Rodin, all cast before 1905, that were a gift to the National Gallery by Mrs. John Simpson. So this is really a story, a story about Rodin and two of his primary craftsmen, Eugène Rudier, the founder, and Jean Limay, the patinator, who created bronze, Rodin's bronze casts, preserving his intrinsic aesthetic in the process. François-Auguste Rodin was born in Paris on November 12th in 1840, the second child of Jean-Baptiste and Marie Rodin, to a family of very modest means. His true His true desire was to be a sculptor and to gain admission to the prestigious École des Beaux-Arts, for which he competed and failed three times. Um, he was admitted, however, uh, to study drawing, but he didn't want to study drawing. He wanted to be a sculptor. So he worked for this, in the studio of, of different sculptors, but ultimately for the longest time he spent with Albert-Ernest Carrier-Belleuse, and he was one of the most well-known sculptors of the day. 
There he was exposed to the operation of a large workshop and worked on and off for Caribolos for almost a decade, including following him to Brussels when there was no work to be had in Paris because of the Franco-Prussian War. He was 35 when his first work was finally accepted to the Paris Salon, and after that his luck began to change. Um, other Salon submissions were more favorably received, and he eventually, in 1880, received his first um, important commission by the French government, which was to design the Gates of Hell, a portal, a door for the Museum of Decorative Arts. Now, the museum was never built, and the doors were never cast in bronze in his lifetime, but it created a very fertile ground for his creativity, and some of his most iconic works, including The Thinker and The Kissed, were created for the portal, and those two works are in the Simpson collection. Now, you see here in 1903, Mrs. Simpson posing for her marble, which is in the National Gallery collection. Um, I wager to say this picture is staged because Rodin probably modeled it in clay and then someone carved the marble. He may have touched up some of the details. Um, he was already a well-established artist when they met, and, they, and um, their, their correspondence, Mrs. Simpson was somewhat sort of intrigued with Rodin. Their correspondence lasted until his death in 1917. When she closed her New York City home in the 40s, she chose to give her a collection to the National Gallery because it would be kept together. And it's important to note also that this is one of the few private collections that was assembled during Rodin's lifetime with his participation that remains intact. Um, and it consists of many works, but over 40 that were given to the gallery, but it's the seven bronzes that we're going to look at today. Now, in the upper right corner, you see Eugène Rudier. They met in the same year, 1902, and Rudier assumed the operation of the family foundry that bore his father's name, Alexis Rudier Foundry. Um, when his father died, I'm going to repeat that, he assumed the operation of the Alexis Rudier, and this is important because although many of Rodin's bronzes are marked Alexis Rudier Fondeur, it is Eugène Rudier, not Alexis, who cast them. Alexis never cast a bronze for Rodin. He, he, had, they, he died before Rodin ever met him. Um, Eugène was to have been, become a very close friend to Rodin in addition to becoming his primary founder after 1905. And Rodin worked with over 30 founders in his lifetime, but it's Rudier's innovative approach that won him his trust. Um, and actually, there was a Time Magazine article written in 1952 that interviews Rudier before he died. It's called The Last Master, and Rudier describes his meeting with Rodin in the, the article. He said that Rodin was not particularly friendly, and he handed him a sculpture for, by another artist first, not willing to trust him with his own. And when he brought the finished cast back, Rodin looked at it for a long time and caressed it with his fingers, saying, excellent. Now, Jean Limay, in the lower right corner, is the second practitioner we're going to talk to. He's the one sort of out of focus in the background, but it doesn't really matter because he and his son seem to be identical twins. Um, they're smoking and patinating at the same time. It's, it's unclear when they met, but Rodin came to depend on uh, Limay in many capacities, as a patinator for his bronze, almost as a quality controller in general for the quality of his cast before Rodin worked with Rudier, and even as a photographer. The seven bronzes in the Simpson collection are shown here. Um, the first three purchased by the Simpsons, the Thinker, the Head of Balzac, and the Walking Man, were shipped together with the marble portrait and arrived in New York in December of 1903. And John Simpson wrote to Rodin confirming their arrival at that time. The Thinker, which we all uh, know very well, and it's nice to do these one at a time because you really can get a sense of the patina and look at the surfaces on these pieces. And they're so important because we know that they went from Rodin's studio 
to the Mrs. Simpson or the Simpsons apartment in New York City and then to the National Gallery of Art. So they never went outside. They never were subjected to anybody else's um, treatment or anything. They have a very pristine surface, which is why they're so important to study. The thinker was um, draws from Michelangelo. Rodin went to Italy in the in 18th 75, and he was very influenced by Michelangelo. And this is derived from a, a tomb figure for the Lorenzo, the Duke of Urbino, that's in the Medici Chapel. And Michelangelo's figure is clad in armor, but he rests his face on his left hand in a contemplative gesture that Rodin interprets in The Thinker. The Thinker became a freestanding sculpture from the gates of hell almost 20 years before Mrs. Simpson purchased it, but he was working on the first enlargement at the time he was working on her portrait. And it seems like they, they probably, he was, she was probably privy to some of his discussions about that. And her scrapbook, which we have here, uh, Mrs. Simpson's scrapbook on Rodin, which was a generous gift to the gallery from the Cantor Foundation about five years ago, is riddled with clippings about the chronic, chronicling the popularity of the thinker. So it was extremely important to her. The head of Balzac is a portrait, as you can imagine, of the great novelist. Uh, Rosette never met Balzac, who had died 40 years before he was commissioned to do a commemorative sculpture of him. So to compensate for this, he immersed himself completely into learning the likeness through studying photographs and reading his own work and interviewing family members. And when he finally finished the plaster, which was exhibited in 18. 98, which was a full figure, not just the head. The Societe that had commissioned him criticized the likeness and rescinded the coveted commission and gave it to his colleague, Alexandre Falguier, instead. Um, but many iterations of the Balzac exist, and it's represented in the Simpson collection as a head considered to be the final study, complete with bulbous lips, deep-set eyes, and thick hair. The Walking Man was one of Rodin's favorites. Um, it's assembled from a torso and legs that he had modeled more than 20 years earlier for St. John the Baptist. The sculpture remains a fragment in its final form, and it's Rodin who's credited with exalting the fragment into a finished sculpture. And now we're sort of used to seeing that, but at the time it was rather um, avant-garde. The Age of Bronze, as it's now called, is probably the fourth purchase by the Simpsons, um, fourth, fourth bronze, excuse me. It was one of his first major works to have been accepted to a Paris salon, exhibited in larger scale in 1877. The sculpture was conceived to honor the suffering endured by the French people during the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, Rodin, this sculpture, rejects the decorative qualities characteristic of art in the Second Empire and focuses instead of purity of form, which unfortunately for him prevails to a fault, and one critic um, erroneously denounced it as having been cast from life. But there are those who, who really recognized it for its technical prowess, and the state actually purchased a version of it in 1880. And it also, this is the sculpture that won um, him the attention of the minister who gave him the commission of the, the Gates of Hell. A less publicly acclaimed sculpture purchased by the Simpsons, and my personal favorite, is the portrait that he uses here of the young um, Camille Claudel, who was his lover throughout much of the 1880s and whose youthful beauty is transformed into the allegory of France simply by the addition of a helmet. This, this particular cast may have been the first bust to be cast in bronze from the clay original. So in addition to the, the other four sculptures, there's a, there are two um, diminutive works, the kiss and the burger, which were likely gifts to Rodin. Um, in fact, the kiss, gifts, I'm sorry, not to Rodin, from Rodin to Mrs. Simpson. And the, uh, the kiss, in fact, 
bears an inscription expressing their friendship. So, if none of the bronzes, bear, except for the kiss, which is marked Barbadien, said so we won't consider it today, um, has a foundry mark, how do we know that these, are attribute, these were cast by Eugène Rudier? These are the four that were... These are the four that we believe were cast by Rudier. All but Walking Man were found in the 1996 catalog to um, have been cast by Rudier through archival means. Um, oh, I'm sorry, just back. The, they all bear a cachet, which I'll show you in a minute, under, in the inside that says Aerodin, which has come to be associated with Rudier. And... We also did technical study of them. So the technical study, as we said, were first begun in the the, um, 90s, but now we have a handheld unit, which Lisa's using in the gallery on the walking man. And, of course, we do this before hours. But the main thing is if you look at the chart, which um, tells you what the alloy compositions are, the first four are the ones thought to be cast by Rudier, Thinker, Walking Man, Age of Bronze, and La France. And if you look at them, they are true bronzes. And the simplest way to, to quick and dirty is to look at the zinc column. And there's much more zinc in the bottom three than there is in the top four. And so these are linked compositionally. Now, remember, there are about 600 foundries working in France at the time that these were cast. So just because you suddenly have a bronze, a, a true bronze sculpture, it doesn't necessarily mean it's Rudier. But it does link the four. So you now have the archival evidence. You have the, the cachet and you have the elemental composition linking these four. So, the, And up in the upper right-hand uh, corner, you see the cachet, a Rodin, which is what has become associated or is associated with the Rudier foundry. And then below, if you were lucky to get the foundry mark, um, you see Alexis Rudier, Fondeur Paris. And this is something I just, Lisha and I took off another sculpture. Um, I mean, it becomes quite common, but these early ones are not consistently marked. But this is from a cast of a fawn in uh, the Glipkotech in Copenhagen. So what Rudier did to um, win Rodin's uh, 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 patronship or whatever it is, to win his favor, was that he came up with an innovative casting technique which basically takes sand casting and makes it so that you can complete the sculpture in one piece and you don't have to um, make it in many pieces. Typically, sand casting is... is I'm just... I'm sorry, I've lost my place. Um Typically, sand casting is done in multiple pieces, almost like a jigsaw puzzle that's then adhered with solder to hold the pieces together. So I show you, excuse me, I show you here another cast that's not by Rudier, that's an absolutely beautiful cast, and that's historically very important by a founder named Leon Przinska. This was shown, Rudier, uh, Rodin had an exhibition in 1900, the first solo exhibition of his work in Paris, at the Pavillon um, de l'Alma, on the Place de l'Alma, and he selected this piece, among others, to represent his work in this exhibition, so you can understand how important it is. But this piece is made using traditional sand casting, whereby the different pieces are soldered after casting. So if you look um, under the arm of war, you can see a seam. That, that's because he's had to join the sculpture. There's, um, and then if you go take a closer detail you can see the seam of the solder right there, which is a lead tin solder. And what Przinka would do is he would, would paint the solder to match the surrounding metal so you couldn't see it unless you were looking into the crevices of the sculpture. 
Unfortunately, he did this for an age of bronze that, Rodin, uh, that was purchased by a gentleman in Lübeck, Germany, and the seam ran across the stomach of, of the figure. And when he put it in his garden and the sculpture was subjected to the elements, the paint washed away, and the man complained to Rodin, and Rodin took it back from him and, and sent him another at his own expense. And then Perzinka had another cast for Rodin fall into 100 pieces, and that was the end of Perzinka. So when, when Rudia came along with the method where he could cast in one piece, um, Rodin, and that was beautifully cast, that was the seamless, when there were seams, they were practically imperceptible. That's why Rodin developed such a great rapport with him. And I will show you um, this beautiful schematic that Dylan Smith made for us. I won't give you the details of sand casting, but suffice to say you have a, um, oops, I've done it again. You start off with a plaster model, which is put in a flask, which is essentially an open frame, and then you put a board under it, and you fill it with sand. And then you, you put another flask on top, and you, you flip the piece over, and you fill it all with sand. And basically what you're doing is creating a hole, a cavity, which will ultimately be formed, filled with metal, and that will be your bronze. And this is an archival image of a plaster model face down inside these flasks. Um, and so when you would, you would cut your sculpture, your, mold, your model, into pieces because it would accommodate undercutting and very you know, difficult forms to achieve in the round. And what Rudier, oh, one other thing, in order to get a sculpture to be hollow, you would have to have a core. And the core fills up the middle except for the thickness of the wall of the metal. And in sand casting, the core basically is like making another sculpture. This is a core. This is made of sand. And what the, art, the founder will do is shave it back, and that little space is going to be the wall of the, the bronze cast. Well, Rudier, instead of making multiple pieces that he assembled, he made multiple cores, which he then put back inside the flask before it was poured into metal. And why does this matter? Well, because you get it. Uh, let's see. This is the age of bronze, and you have an x-ray, and you don't have any of the seams that you're, the solder joins that were evident on the, the call to arms. You also typically would take the sand out of a core when, after it was cast because the idea was to have it hollow. But in this case, remember, this is an x-ray, so this area that is dark is actually less dense. And what's happened here is the core has been taken out of the top but left in the bottom half for ballast so that the sculpture, the top-heavy sculpture doesn't tip over. The other thing you see here is you do see seams, and you think, well, what? these are seams, and if it's cast in one piece, why are we seeing seams here? Um, and when is, this plagued us. I have to say, Alicia and I struggled with this for a long time, um, and that we fortunately met a man who, in the Netherlands, a conservator who's writing his Ph.D. on Rodin casts, and every time he would see Leisha at a conference, he would say, you're wrong, it's cast in one piece. And we'd say, no, you're wrong, it's cast in multiple pieces, we have seams. And we I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and I thought, he's right. The seams, the armatures for the core don't overlap the seam. And when you look inside the sculpture, where the metal has poured out because the cores have shifted, all the flaws of the casting process are now happening on the inside of the sculpture in some, for the most part and not the exterior. And these, these things we thought were seams were really where the cores have shifted. Um, and, and so you get he, he, this, this sculpture of the finger is probably the very first cast that Rudier did in one pour. The other thing that's kind of fun about this is that these clips, which we were convinced it was clipped to its seat, and it turns out these are not separate clips, but they're just dug with it, their fingers in the core, and they're put in areas where they anticipated um, extra support. 
So all of this to say, Rudier came up with an innovative approach that achieved the same quality of sand casting as you could get, say, in a lost wax cast, which was done in one pour, but using a sand casting method, which is much more efficient. He ran a studio of maybe 40 uh, practitioners, and each one would have his specialization, and you would have the core people and the mold makers, and he could streamline a process and come up with a very uh, high-quality sculpture at less time than it would take to sand ca- to create the same thing using the lost wax method. So once you have this really high-quality cast, which Rodin was very pleased with, he turned it over for the most part to Lime to patinate. And Lime um, was trained as a landscape painter, but couldn't make, an, um, couldn't make a living out of painting, so he turned to bronze patination. It's possible that Lime met Rodin through his studio neighbor, a man named, a sculptor named Jean-Joseph Carrier, and it's possible also that it's Carrier who encouraged him to become a patinator. Carrier had also had himself um, experimented with colorful patinas before he turned to ceramics as, as a sole medium. So through the three of them, there was they had a third one who worked nearby them in a studio, an American, Paul Bartlett. And thankfully, Bartlett had this, the intelligence to write down recipes, and he's become invaluable to us looking back on some of these patinas to try to put the pieces together, what we're seeing, and how they might have been made. Chemical patinas, Bartlett describes in his notebook, are, are equivalent to the skin of the bronze having a texture and a beauty all of its own. It's a permanent alteration or corrosion of the surface of the metal. It can be produced by the slow action of ages. Thus, the lovely green patina, which spreads like a varying film of del- delicate undressed kid over antique bronzes, is in reality a time-honored rust. Um, how do we know that Lime patinated these bronzes? Because he couldn't possibly have been the only patinator Rodin used. And if Rodin was having bronzes cast all the time, um, there could have been multiple patinators. Well, we found in the Rodin archives a letter written by Lime to Rodin. You see he addresses it to him, mon cher maître. It's written in Caillot on the 13th of July. Night. Oops. I'm having a tough time with this pointer. 13 of July, 1903, and we know the Simpson bronzes were shipped to them in September of 1903. And in this letter, he talks about his American client and her thinker, and so we and it's signed Jean Limay. So we know that Jean Limay patinated this bronze, and not only do we know that he patinated these bronzes, but that he came back to Paris specifically to do it. So he would have been near Rodin when he patinated them. Um, Another fortunate thing happened was uh, b- between the first time we, the late 90s and today was the, the photographs. These are photographs taken by Jean Limay of Age of Bronze, but they didn't know who had taken them. And at one point in the last 20 years, some of his grandchildren went to the Rodin Museum with the negatives and said, oh, would you like these negatives? Of, and they were able to identify the photographer of many of them. So a curator at the Rodin, Hélène Pinet at the Rodin Museum began to look at Rodin's, uh, at Limay's photography and wondered if some of the colors that appeared in his photographs didn't in fact appear in his patinas. And you can see on the, right here is a Bon Marché receipt, which is basically a department store receipt where Limay has started practicing with blues in the background. And then we just included a series of the recipes for patinas in um, Bartlett's book at the bottom. 
So through examination and analysis, we found that the surfaces were made, the surfaces of our bronzes, and I I just showed a detail of La France just because I'm partial, and I think she has the most colorful platina as well. Um, So a layering of chemicals was used to create tones from black or mossy green to bright green, Subtle hues in the patina were abraded, so the light green would be below, and then it would be a, the darker color would be put on top, and then it would be abraded. And light, the light green was found to contain copper nitrate, copper nitrate solution. And if you look at the the receipt that Rodin was given by Lime to pay, to be reimbursed for the chemicals he bought, the first thing you see is nitrate of copper. And notice too that he's not bought these from a. a chemical supply store, but also a supply store that supplies photographers with photographic chemicals. It's called Poulenc-Fer, as you can see. Um, the outer layer of the patina consisted of ferric nitrate, which created the dark reddish-brown, and it was sometimes interspersed with black. When we analyzed the black, it, w- it was found to contain gold. And although gold is not visible to the naked eye, Bartlett, in his recipes, explains that black patinas can be achieved using a combination of gold 3-chloride and tin nitrate. Now, gold-3-chloride is also a light-sensitive compound used historically for gold toning in the creation of photographic chrysotype prints. And in Tricks of the Trade, Bartlett also notes that you can take the the, um, gold and silver from photographic baths and recover them and use them again. Other examples of black, this time in the form of mercury and chloride, were also detected on La France, possibly, in this case, mercuric chloride, which is a sensitizer used in photography at that time. And Bartlett also writes that dissolving mercuric chloride in vinegar and brushing it on the surface achieved a black patina. The surface of La France, if you look in her headdress, or you just have to believe me, she has blue around her eyes, and in the recesses of the headdress is sort of a reddish color. Um, The same materials were applied to other sculptures like the thinker. But analyses of this reddish, brown, and blue-grain areas found that they contain the pigment Prussian blue. And this was a problem Lisha and I had because... When we went to Philadelphia to the Rodin Museum, we were talking to the conservator there, Andrew Linz, and we said, well, we found pigments on the surface of our Rodin bronzes. And he said, well, Rodin didn't like pigments. I have a letter where he writes Mr. Carlsberg in, in, in Denmark and says, I would never use pigments. They're too commercial. And we thought, well, does he not know that Lima is using pigments? Is he lying? And we found out that if you look right here, uh, Prussian blue, which is the pigment, one of the pigments we identified contains potassium cyanide and iron sulfate. And if you look right here, it says cyanide of potassium. And and Prussian blue is also used by photographers to create cyanotypes, which is a process of photographic contact printing. And so basically, you could create this Prussian blue on the surface using these different chemicals without actually introducing a a purchased um, pigment. And so both of them were honest in this case. So the degree that... Uh, Lime ultimately selected the palette of the patina for the sculpture apparently varied. So it's fair to assume that when he was at Caillot-sur-Mer, which is 150 miles from Paris, he had to rely on his own judgment. But in the case of the Simpson bronzes, specifically the thinker, which is mentioned in the letter, we know he patinated it in Paris, near Rodin. So what are these drips oops, down the thinker's legs? We thought, well, it wasn't ever outdoors. They're not different chemically from the rest of the surface. Was Lime just sloppy? I mean, how could he be sloppy when he's sending a sculpture to Mrs. Simpson, of all people? Rodin encouraged his students to to, um, 
preserve the, to, in, to embrace the happy accident. And so these drimps, perhaps created by accident, were intentionally preserved as an element of the patina's aesthetic. Catch the accidents and convert them into science, Rodin's known to have said. The notion of the accident or beauty derived from imperfection inspired by Japanese art and introduced to many Parisians at the 1878 Exposition Universelle was embraced by Limay and Rodin. Rodin's interest in Japanese is well documented. So the drips on the legs of the Simpson thinker are subtle, but would have been understood by his contemporaries as, as embracing this, this aesthetic. And just also to prove our point, here is a photograph by, by Drouet, who, is a, who photographed the sculpture of La Pleureuse in, in Rodin's time, and Rodin would have seen it. And in this case, they're using the patina drips to accentuate her crying expression. And getting back to uh, Rodin's studio mate, Jean Carriès, who was perhaps the one who introduced him to Rodin, um, Lisha and I saw this sculpture in Montreal, and this is one of Carriès' sculptures. And it's too bad we don't have the back, because when they turned it around, I... I almost I, I was just incredulous. They're brown drips all the way down the back of it. But they're blue in the interstices, just like the Prussian blue that we have on our thinker. So technical study of the National Gallery of Art Simpson collection bronzes offers a mere glimpse into the prolific pro production of Rodin's lifetime bronzes. Yet this small but important group provides insight into Rodin's aesthetic. They represent a cross-fertilization of disciplines tailored by Rodin and a moment in history. Eugène Rudier, tasked with reproducing the work of the master, and Jean Limay's artistic vision, integrate, Jean Limay's charged with bestowing color, integrate their skills to realize Rodin's artistic vision. The thinker, walking man, age of bronze may be familiar subjects, but they are unique. Process and product coalesce to record the sculpture of a great artist and the collection of his special patron. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 